0: Luke chapter 10. We're going to look at Luke ten thirty-eight to 42. And before we do, let's pray and let's ask the Lord to bless our time together in his word. Father in heaven, we thank you. We bless you that you are a God who calls us to worship you, that you are the true and living God, the one who is worthy of all praise and glory and honor for all power and might and dominion and glory are yours and you reign in unapproachable light with your Son and your Holy Spirit. And we worship you, the true and living God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We call upon you to be present with us. We ask, Lord Jesus, that you would change us and transform us as we consider what your word says about um, our call to worship and the privilege that we have to worship. Give us greater understanding in these things. Change our hearts and give us a greater desire to worship you in private with our families and in public. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Luke chapter 10, beginning in verse 38. Now, as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving. And she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care That my sister has left me to serve alone. Tell her then to help me. But the Lord answered her Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. This is a passage of scripture that I return to on at least a monthly basis, if not often on a weekly or daily basis. Because I feel like Martha through so much of my, my labors day in and day out. Martha was trying to prepare a meal for Jesus. She was engaged in serving the Savior. She was doing something for the Savior, and yet she was carried away. The language that Luke uses is that she was torn this way and that way. It's actually very intentional language. She was pulled in every direction, and she started to get stressed out. And there's Mary sitting down at the feet of Jesus, and Martha starts to judge Mary. How can she sit at Jesus' feet? She needs to come in here and help me. And then Martha starts to judge Jesus. And notice that Luke tells us that she goes up to Jesus, verse 40. So she, she stands over him, literally, is the intention. And she says, Lord... Do you not care that my sister has left me alone to serve? So Martha stands over Jesus, and she says, Jesus, you don't care. You don't care about my stressful situation. You don't care that I'm distracted. You don't care that my sister's not helping me. And then notice what what does she do to Jesus in, in verse 40. Then she commands Jesus. Now, before we say, how could she do that? We are exactly like Martha by nature and oftentimes by experience. So she stands over Jesus. She questions Jesus. Don't you care? And then she says, Jesus, you need to tell my sister to come help me serve. And so you see how Martha's heart has been weighed down with the cares of the world. That's the language Jesus uses in the parable of the four soils. The word has been choked out at this moment for Martha by the cares of the world the desire for other things even something good like serving she's she's serving the savior that's a good thing and yet she hasn't realized that she needs to be served by him and really when we talk about worship and we'll see that Mary here is engaged in private worship and think that would be the first sphere I want to talk about today Mary's engaged in private worship sometimes when you read Uh, Reformed theologians, they will so emphasize public worship and family worship that you don't get a whole lot of conversation about private worship, and some of that is a reaction to broad evangelicalism, me and my Bible and my quiet times, and I'm not really plugged in my church, and I'm involved in all these other parachurch things, and so the reform kind of react to that, but there are these beautiful pictures in the scripture of individuals who are engaged in private worship. You have Mary here, and Jesus says, Mary has chosen the good portion. She has the one thing necessary. She's learned to sit at the feet of the Savior and listen to him. She's learned that feeding her soul is more important than feeding her body. She's learned that listening to Jesus and being served by him and worshiping him privately is more important than serving him and, and laboring, which is very interesting, actually, because what does the account of Mary and Martha come right after Fascinating juxtaposition. Well, it comes right after the Good Samaritan. And the point of the Good Samaritan is go and do likewise. Yes, we need a Savior. Jesus is the Good Samaritan, He redeems us, He does everything for us when we were dead and, and left to destruction. He comes along. He takes care of us. But then the second point of the Good Samaritan is go and do likewise. Care for your enemies who are in need. Show that the love of Christ dwells in you by serving others. But lest we think that's the thing of the Christian life, the Holy Spirit's given us this beautiful picture of Mary not out trying to serve and not out trying to Uh, And and I'm going to say this this morning. I think a lot of Christian service, if the motivation behind it is wrong, is an attempt to atone for sins. Even Christians can become self-righteous in service. So they're consumed in trying to serve and be a good person, and they're not being served by the Savior. And so that's why we have this account of Mary and, and Martha. And there are all these other little cameos in the scriptures of private worship. One of the ones I love, and the Puritans will talk about this Is uh, Nathanael. When Jesus calls Nathanael in John chapter 1, he says, You know, I saw you under the tree. And the Puritans will sort of read into that, and I think they're right, that Nathanael's having a quiet time with the Lord under the tree, probably in the scriptures, and Jesus is saying, I saw you there, I saw your private worship, I am the God you worship, you are a true Israelite. He was a believer. And he was having this quiet time. David, it's impossible for us to read the Psalms without seeing how David is feeding his soul with God's word on a daily basis. He says it's, 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 it's everything, Psalm 119. Um, Job will say to God that his word was more necessary than his daily food, that he considered God's word more necessary than his daily food. Now, this series, as I've already said, is really... We're going to look at the three spheres of worship. And and this morning I want to talk about private worship and I'm going to come back and retouch on it next week. But I want to read to us something out of J.I. Packer's book Quest for Godliness, which is really an introduction to Puritan theology. And <clears throat> Packer is going to use that phraseology of the spheres of worship. Now when Packer sets them out, he doesn't say it's private, family, and public. He says it's public, family, and private. He puts them in that order. Public, family, and private. And then we'll see in just a minute why he puts them in that order. I've put them in the opposite order. And there's a reason for that, which we'll talk about. But let me define for us, I think this is a very beautiful way that J.I. Packer defines... um, defines what he calls the three spheres of Christian worship. And what he says is that um, worship is, and I'm trying to remember this phrase that he uses exactly, it's coming away from all of my uh, discouragement and failure and directing my attention up to the God of heaven. So Packer's going to say, worship is coming away from all of our discouragement and failure, and of of men of us and directing our attention up to the god of heaven and i think that's a very helpful way to think about worship because that's going to happen in private when we are communing with god in the scriptures and prayer it's going to happen in our families lots of discouragement even among us as families and when we pull away we are directing our eyes together to the god of heaven and our souls are being refreshed and then ultimately The highest expression is public worship. Now, Packer is going (laughs) to talk about public worship, and he's going to say that public worship is the nearest resemblance of heaven that earth knows. I want you to hear that again. Public worship is the nearest resemblance of heaven that earth knows, because in heaven, it's going to be a great multitude. It's not going to be you and your Bible over here, away from the fellowship of the saints. It's going to be us together, a great multitude, together praising God, worshiping God, that heavenly worship service. And here's here's what Packer says. Speaking of the three spheres, public, family, and private, he says of these three, public worship is the most important. I agree with that. David Clarkson, he's a, he's a Puritan, was entirely typical when preaching on Psalm 87.2 under the title, public worship to be preferred before private, and I agree with that. He argued from scripture that, quote, the Lord is more glorified by public worship. Clarkson again says, and I quote, there is more of the Lord's presence in public worship. Again, Clarkson said, here are the clearest manifestations of God. There is more spiritual advantage to be got in the use of public ordinances, and public worship is more edifying. Packer says, strikingly, yet characteristically for many others, made the same point. He reminds us that public worship is the nearest resemblance of heaven that earth knows. For in heaven, so far as the scripture describes it to us, all the worship of that glorious company is public. They make one glorious congregation and so jointly together sing the praises of him that sits on the throne and the praises of the lamb and continue employed in the public worship to eternity. Packer continues, similarly, Swinnick, George Swinnick, another Puritan, insists that on the Lord's Day, church must come first and everything else built around it. Esteem the public ordinances, the chief work of the day, and let the secret and private duties be so managed that your soul may be prepared for them and profited by them. So I agree with all of that. I think what the church needs today more than anything is to get to that. The church in America, the church in Puerto Rico I was just at, the church all around the world constantly needs to be reminded, and the writer of Hebrews has to do that, doesn't he? He says don't forsake The assembling of yourselves together, as is the manner of some. Why did the writer of Hebrews have to say, don't forsake the assembly? Because it's in our sin natures to not want to be gathered together under the public ordinances, and yet that is the primary way God shepherds us to glory. So I agree with the Puritans on that. When Packer talks about the second sphere, family worship, he makes this important point. Family worship was also to the Puritans vitally important. Every home should be a church with the head of the house as its minister. Daily and indeed twice daily, the Puritans recommended that the family as a family should hear the word read, pray to God. Sunday by Sunday, the family should seek to pull the profiting of, its, profiting of its members from the public ordinances. Day by day, its members should seek to encourage each other in the way of God. Parents must teach their children the scriptures. All members of the household must be given time and place to pray, thus informally, but conscientiously, the worship and service of God in the home must be carried on. Now, if you've read the Puritans, to any degree, you're going to see that family worship is hugely important. It's not enough to just go do the public worship and then through the rest of your week, take a vacation from God. Um, you see this exemplified in the scriptures. Daniel prayed three times a day. Um, fathers are told to bring up their children in the training and admonition of the Lord, that the the husband is to be, in a sense, a minister in his home. Now, notice why Packer is going back in spheres of importance, because in our day, there is, and I'll say this, there is a dangerous approach in a hyper-homeschool patriarchal model that says the father's the priest and nobody's going to tell me what to do. Frankly, that is just straight up unbiblical. God has appointed elders to shepherd his church. Does the father have headship in his home? Yes. Does the father have headship over the church? No. So I, I'm going to say that because there are lots and lots and lots of abuses of this right now. I've had ministers say to me, who are you to tell me that my child is not ready to take the supper? And I've had to say, well, I'm an elder in Jesus' church and the supper has been entrusted to the elders, the keys of the kingdom have been given to the elders. And this is very important. Uh, Derek Thomas recently did a conference for us for our presbytery, in which he said, um, very strategically, I think, um, he said, church comes first, not family. And he said, I'll argue with you about that. Church comes first. I agree with Derek Thomas. So you can see the Puritans wanted to emphasize corporate worship. That's the highest, that's the most important. But then family worship. Now, we don't want to swing the pendulum the other way and say, well, church is the most important. So, you know, let the pastor do all the work. Let the church do all the work. What should happen is we should go from here and in our homes on a daily basis, there should be that practice of family worship. We're going to talk about that. I'll give you lots of. Little helpful, hopefully helpful instructions, kind of thoughts about what you can do to kind of improve that. Um, All these things should be a delight. They're all good for you. They're good for your family. God does require them. But what I want to talk about this morning, having introduced those two, and it's interesting to me that in Packer's section on the pursuit of godliness on spheres of worship, he doesn't talk about the importance of private devotion and private worship in this section. He talks about public and family, and I'm going to argue... That I put private worship first in the order, in the title of the series, then family, then public, because I think that through the week, everything should be building to that public gathering. And it starts with us reading the Word as individuals, worshiping God, having our souls fed, having our minds renewed, because um, we need that every day, um, going back to God, communing with God having our consciences washed in the blood of Jesus because of the sin that we've, we've uh, practiced during the week, I think if it doesn't start there, you're not going to have a very fruitful family worship experience or have one at all, and then you're going to look at corporate worship as a burdensome duty. Instead, I think the Bible would say to us, as we feed our souls— On God's Word as God revives us on a daily basis as we worship him then then we want to do that with our families and Then ultimately we're looking forward to the Lord's Day Uh, The Puritans used to call it the Lord's Day the the feast day of the soul and so we've been feeding Husbands feeding their children and their wives and then the feast day of the soul, so That's why I want to take it in this order now when we talk about private worship. We don't have any clear commands in Scripture just like we don't with family worship. We actually don't have any super clear directives. And as I often tell you, I think a lot of us want, you know, seven steps. Just give me seven steps. So I'm going to give you 12 helpful points. They're not steps. They're not principles. Um, they are principles. They're not, they're not God-commanded. They're just ways to help us um, study the scriptures. Now, it's June. And every January, most of us make a a resolution to read the Bible through the year. By the end of February, we give up. It's just like New Year's resolutions with gyms for most people. If you go to the gym, it's like packed in January. It's kind of dwindling a little bit in February. And then by March, April, those people are not coming anymore. Um, I think the same thing happens to us with our resolutions for reading through the Bible in a year. So I'm not going to give you any kind of directive for reading through the Bible in the year. If you want to do that, McShane is great. Uh, Piper has a really helpful through the year. Lots and lots of people have written through the Bible in a year um, directives. I like to say, because I know it's true for myself and for my wife and probably for a lot of you, you need to be reading the Bible all during the year. (laughs) I think that's a little more helpful maybe because it seems like at the end of the year, almost everybody has failed to keep the resolution. So let's just make a resolution we can all keep, and that is we need to be in the scriptures. We need to be sitting at the feet of Jesus as often as we can on a daily basis through the year. Now, I want to say this at the outset too because I don't want this to be guilt-driven. There are going to be times that you you didn't take the time you should have taken to sit at the feet of Jesus. And when that happens, and and I've kind of come to terms with this for myself, the best thing in the world to do is to pray that God gives you a desire and to jump right back in. Now, I often find it helpful to read through books of the Bible. I do that with family worship. Privately, pick a book. Pick Colossians. And take five or six or eight verses and meditate on them. And the next time you have... Private devotions pick right back up. That's why we do this sort of Lectio Continua preaching at New Covenant. Expository preaching should help you then model that personally and say, okay, that's what we do in church. Let's just import that into our private reading. And I find that to be a very helpful thing. So you're busy. You have a couple sinful days. You selfishly please yourself and go out and do everything you want to do. There's a Bible verse that says uh, men busy themselves in vain. I know that experientially, what that's like. Busying ourselves in vain, and then, ah, I didn't do devotions. But I did all these other things. Well, instead of living in condemnation and guilt, go back to the Lord and say, Lord, forgive me. Lord, give me a desire for this. And jump right back in where you left off. So if you're reading through 1 Kings, and you've made it through the first six chapters, and then you have a crummy week, don't say the next time, well, maybe I'll just start reading John jump right back in, because what you're doing is you're training yourself how to really benefit the most from the scriptures. Um, You may want to read Old and New Testament uh, simultaneously. That's what McShane recommends. I think there's a lot of benefit to that. McShane throws the Psalms and the Proverbs in there with an Old and a New Testament, and I think there's a lot of benefit in that too. Um, We need the wisdom of the Proverbs. We need the heart devotion of the Psalms. We need the theology of the Old and New Testament. That may be too much for you. I'm just kind of throwing out there some practical approaches. Um, I've given you a sheet with those 12 principles or helps in studying scripture in private worship. And what I want us to do this morning is just to kind of wade into this, and we'll obviously pick back up next week. What I'd like to do is talk about the use of other devotionals. Next week, I want to talk about what devotionals I find most beneficial, how to benefit the most from them, what I think don't read Oswald Chambers on any kind of regular basis. because very unhelpful. You can do much, much better. Um, and, and those are the kind of things I want to talk about next week. This week, if you read Oswald Chambers, I'm sorry. I've, I've benefited from Oswald Chambers, but there's much, much more helpful material out there for devotionals that you can read daily devotionals what I want us to think about this morning is our approach in private devotions I I read John Owen when I was a young Christian and I disagreed with what he said then but I absolutely agree now and what he said is that we should never come to the personal reading of scripture without going to God in prayer that's a paraphrase but he's right Now, can you benefit from reading the scriptures if you don't pray before you read them? Yes. Why? Because it's God's word, and God works when we fail to do what we ought to do, the way we ought to do it. And God's spirit is not limited to whether I prayed before I read the scriptures or not. Should we expect great benefit if we read the Bible without praying? No. Notice I said great benefit. We should not expect great benefit If we come to the scriptures without praying, because what we're ultimately saying is my understanding of God's word is based on my reasoning ability. It is a mere intellectual understanding, and we're functionally saying I don't need the illuminating work of the Holy Spirit. And Paul prayed for the Ephesians in Ephesians 1, 15 through 23. He said he prayed that the eyes of our hearts would be enlightened. Now, they had already been enlightened. Enlightened. He just told the Ephesians all that they already had in Christ. He said, but I pray for you that the eyes of your hearts might be enlightened, that you may know more of the the mystery of God, the Father and the Son. So Paul is everywhere talking about the need for the illumination of the Holy Spirit to give us understanding. Paul will say that um, the Bible in 1 Corinthians 2, it's actually a very, very important portion that often gets overlooked at the end of 1 Corinthians 2. He'll actually say that no one can understand the things of God except by the Spirit of God. The Spirit searches the deep things of God and he reveals them to us and we compare spiritual things with spiritual. And what he's saying is we need the Holy Spirit not only to reveal God's word, which he's done in the scriptures, but to illuminate our minds and hearts to give us understanding. So we should always pray before we come to God's word. John Piper gives this really helpful um, outline. It's not really a... Acronym, It sort of is. And I think Stephen, who's here with us this morning, maybe pointed this out to me the first year I was converted. And I think this is very helpful. I pray this often. I pray maybe portions of this often. Um, And so I'm reminding myself of the need to do this. Notice that Piper gives us this I-O-U-S. I-O-U-S. So it helps you remember if you can remember those first letters. The first one is Psalm 119.36. We should pray, incline my heart to you. Not to prideful gain or any false motive. It's a very, very, very helpful thing to pray because there's always that danger that we start to grow, we start to learn, and then we become proud and puffed up and judgmental. And so the heart motive, so incline my heart to you that it may not be given over to prideful gain or any false motive. Second, and this is the one I pray the most, the O. Open my eyes, and he means the eyes of our hearts, Open my eyes to behold wonderful things in your word. Psalm 119.18. If that's the only one you pray, every time you come to the scriptures, I would be a happy pastor because you are acknowledging your dependence on God. You're saying, I can't understand. I can't see the riches of the glory of Jesus Christ. Moses prayed, show me your glory. The psalmist is saying the same thing. Open the eyes of my heart. That I might see wonderful things in your word. So there are are wonderful things in the scriptures, but God has to open our eyes to see them. So that's the O. You, unite my heart to fear your name. Psalm 8611. It's important that we revere our God and fear him and not men. And God has to notice in all these things, David's showing dependence on God. God has to unite our hearts to fear his name. And then the S, satisfy me with your steadfast love. And that's really saying, make me to know the love that you have for me in the gospel in Christ. Satisfy me with your steadfast love. So I find that to be a very helpful little acronym, I-O-U-S. Maybe it'll be helpful to you. So pray before you read the Bible. Number two, second principle, commit to a regular Bible reading plan. I've already sort of touched through that. You could do a through the Bible in a year approach. You may not. As I've already said, I think it's best at least to work through a book consecutively and then move on to another book. Switch between Old and New Testament, maybe. Maybe do Colossians, then do Judges. And what what you'll find is as you do that, you learn the Bible better, and it helps you benefit more as you read the Bible. Because the more you know of the Scriptures, the more you get out of the Scriptures. It's just like working out. It's just like dieting. The more you do the more you benefit. The longer you do it, the more you should benefit. So I encourage you all to commit to a a regular Bible reading plan, or at least regular Bible reading. Three, accumulate as much biblical knowledge as possible. Now, I sort of just touched on that, too. Familiarize yourself with the old as well as the new. Read the law, the prophets, the wisdom literature, the historical books, the gospels, the epistles, and the apocalypse. Those are kind of your genre categories, and it's good for you to be versed in all those things. We want to be as versed as we can. Our Lord Jesus studied the scriptures. We know that because it said that he grew in wisdom and knowledge. When he was in the wilderness... And he battled the devil with Deuteronomy. He is the true Israel doing what Israel failed to do in a unique way that we don't. But that shows that he knew a book that probably most of us don't know well because he meditated on it deeply and, and powerfully. Now, it had a unique relationship to him as Redeemer that it doesn't have to us in the same way, but it still teaches us when Jesus was on the cross, he was praying and he was citing scripture. He didn't know all that in his human nature by osmosis. As the son of God, he knows everything. But as man, he had to learn and grow, Luke tells us. He grew in wisdom and stature, in favor with God and man. He had to study the scriptures. He says that in Isaiah 50. He says, the Lord God has given me the ear to learn that I may speak a word to him who is weary. He awakens me morning by morning. He awakens my ear. And the implication of that, and the best theologians, in my opinion, nail this, is that Jesus woke up and got in the word. And so astonishing was his knowledge of the scriptures that those around him said, how can he know so much having never studied in the schools? Well, because he studied privately. He gave himself to meditating on and learning the scriptures. That's a huge point that often doesn't get talked about and one that's very important. The more we know biblical knowledge, the more we'll be able to say, okay, Paul says that I'm not justified by the law, by what I do, but here in Deuteronomy it says do this and live. That's either a contradiction or I've got to figure out that's saying the law demands perfect obedience, and if a man could give it, he would live, but none of us have. And so Paul says God gave the law to make sin exceedingly sinful, and so I know that I'm not trying to work to live, because Paul says you can't. So the more you know the Bible, the better you're going to be able to do that, and you're going to be able to systematize. And that's important, because we all, we all are going to interpret the Scriptures, Um, Someone who doesn't have the Holy Spirit, who hates Jesus and opens the Bible, they are interpreting that Bible. Almost 100 out of 100 times falsely, but all of us are interpreting what we read. So the more biblical knowledge we have, the safer it's going to be in our interpretation. We're comparing spiritual things with spiritual. That was the big principle for the Reformed, the reformers talked about scripture is its own interpreter. So if you want to know what, why Melchizedek shows up in these little verses in Genesis 14, you read Hebrews 5 through 7. And God tells you lots and lots of stuff you probably wouldn't have seen otherwise. Um, because scripture interprets itself. So, okay, that's the third. Accumulate as much biblical knowledge as possible. The fourth remember the two supremely important principles of biblical interpretation. I'm just getting ahead of myself on each of these. One, the scriptures are their own interpreter. So that's the first big point. So before you rush to Matthew, Henry, John, Calvin, all of which you want to read and use, rush to the scriptures, rush to God in prayer. I remember struggling with What Jesus meant in Luke 7, when he says, uh, we played the flute for you and you did not dance, we mourned for you and you did not lament, but wisdom is justified by our children. And what he's saying is that John the Baptist came and, and he called men to repentance. It was like a funeral. You need to weep and repent. Jesus came and he said the kingdom's like a wedding feast. And whether it was mourning or joy, the people rejected Jesus. They rejected John's witness to Jesus. They rejected Jesus. They were like children playing these games, and they rejected what they were pointing to. And Jesus is saying, wisdom is justified by her children, by the things that I do and I say. I am being shown to be who John said I was and who the scriptures say I am. But that's, that was a very difficult portion of scripture. I didn't understand that. And I went to um, the guy who discipled me, Mike Cuneo, who we support in Italy, and I said, Mike what does this mean? And he said, why don't you go ask God? I was like, okay, never had anybody ever say that to me before. But I went, and I prayed. I was like, Lord, I really want to know what this means. And I kept meditating on it, and, I was, and then I went to Matthew Henry, and then it was like, ah, that makes a lot of sense. <laughs> but I think that's the right approach. Scripture is its own interpreter. We want to study Scripture carefully. We want to consider the larger context in which things are being said. And then the second principle we want to remember At the bottom of your first sheet here, the clearer passages are to be used to interpret the less clear passages of Scripture. Now, our confession says not all things in Scripture are as clear and as plain to everybody. There are some things that are more difficult. Sometimes I hear Reformed people like, Well, you're saying you need a Gnostic key of understanding to get all this biblical typology. And it's like, Well, you need the key of the Holy Spirit. And not all things are as easy in Scripture. And there are men that functionally treat, um, even in our own circles, the Bible sometimes as, well, it should be clear to everybody. Everybody should understand everything exactly the same way. And I always take comfort in the fact that the Apostle Peter said of the Apostle Paul that he wrote many difficult things that are hard to understand that unstable and untaught men twist to their own destruction. So... There are tough things in the Bible. There are also very clear things in the Bible. When Paul says a man is not justified by works, but by faith in Jesus, you can. and there are men, new perspective on Paul, Roman Catholics, that will muddy that all day long. That is as clear as it comes. Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. I can teach that to my children. That's very clear when the Bible says that the fullness of the Godhead dwells in Jesus. It doesn't get clearer than that. Jesus is God and man. <laughs> there are very, there, so there are things in the Bible that are um, very clear, and then there are difficult things. James 2 is very difficult. It seems to contradict Paul on the surface. Man's not justified by faith alone, but by works making his faith perfect. But then when you look at that more difficult passage, you see that James is talking about the human court. How is a man justified before men? How is it shown that he has saving faith? It's by the works that evidence to that. Um, Paul is talking about justification before God. So you take the more clear passage, you say, this is clear, not works, by faith. And then when you come to a more difficult passage like James, you say, okay, so what is James saying? If I know this clearer passage, what is this more difficult passage saying? I think that's a very important, a very important uh, principle. That really works itself out in how we read the Old Testament, especially, because there's many things that can be twisted and misunderstood in the Old Testament. And Augustine said, "The Old Testament is the New Testament concealed, and the New Testament is the Old Testament revealed. So the Old Testament is the New Testament concealed. The New Testament is the Old Testament revealed. That's so that that means especially we want to be in the New Testament. And I'll say this because some people say, well, that sounds dispensational. Well, it sort of is. I mean, the Puritans talk about two dispensations, the dispensation of law and the dispensation of the gospel. The Apostle Paul talks about two dispensations in Ephesians chapter three. He talks about the dispensation of the fullness of the times. Paul talks about the mystery that was hidden has now been made known. So the New Testament is more light. It's more full. It's the same Bible. It's all about Jesus. It's all about your need for Jesus. But the New Testament gives us the full light so that we can then read the Old Testament and get more out of it. Now, some people say, well, you're saying that Old Testament saints then, they they didn't know what we knew. Well, they didn't know to the same degree what we know. Jesus said that Prophets, righteous men, and kings longed to see what the disciples saw, but they did not see them. Paul will speak about seeing through a glass darkly. That's true of the Old and New Testament. We see more light, more clearly, living on this side of the cross. We see everything that's been accomplished. So I would say in remembering that second principle, the clearer passages are to be used to interpret the less clear passages. That would refer to the New Testament helping us understand the Old better too. Now, the old helps us understand the new better as well, but there's less light, more light. So let me stop here and ask. We're only on our fourth principle. Are there any questions or comments about any of these? Um, uh, Yes, sir. Yeah, well, Matthew 6, the whole, that whole section on the Sermon on the Mount is an outstanding proof of the need for private worship. So Jesus says, you know, don't do your almsgiving publicly to be seen by men, but, but give in secret. Don't let your fasting be outward and, oh, I'm fasting, look at me. But do it secretly before the Lord. Go in your closet when you pray. Don't go out on the street corners to be heard. I don't think that it's contrasting with public worship so much as it's contrasting with wanting to be seen publicly for what you're doing religiously. So the contrast is between giving in secret, praying in secret, doing all that you do unto the Lord from the heart, not to be seen by men. But Jesus will then go on to say, let your light shine so that your good works are seen by men. So in the same section, as he says, don't do this to be seen by men, he turns around and he says, but let your light shine so that your good works are seen by men and God gets glory. So I think the contrast is between heart motives. Um, uh, it would be wrong for a man to, and I've done this probably in the past where you're praying at a restaurant publicly and you're praying loud so you want people to hear. I don't do that anymore, by God's grace. But I, I, I've... I've I've been in a room where I know when somebody's doing that. <laughs> um, that's to be heard by men. If you're, if you're doing that to be heard by men, that's bad. If you're doing it thanking God for your meal with whatever company you're with, and people hear that and that's a witness, that's good. But if you're doing it to be seen by men, and I think that's what Jesus is saying. It's all about the heart motive. Um, I was at a church where they would do a diaconal giving, and I used to tell Anna this was the weirdest thing in the world and the deacon would get up and he would um, he would stand before the congregation and he'd take out a lot of ones and he'd lick them to show that he was putting money in the plate. I don't see how that's not pharisaical. I mean, if Jesus meant anything, he meant that. I mean, look at me, I'm giving, you should give too. So, so I don't think it's against public worship. I think what it's saying is, and I've always been, you know, when I've given in church, I don't look when you guys are giving, you know, and in church, when the plates passed, I'm always trying to like just put it in there real quick so nobody sees You know, that's the principle. It's, it's We don't want to do things to be seen. Um, but Frankie, that's I'm glad you brought that up because I do think Jesus does teach in that also, the need for private worship. Go into your prayer closet. Pray secretly to your father. He sees, he hears. Don't think you have to heap up words. So that's an outstanding um, uh, passage. Any other questions or comments up to this point? That's a great point, Jeff. Table Talk does. usually takes a book and then they work through the daily devotionals. They're real short, they're usually accurate. That's an outstanding resource. Um, And we'll talk more about other devotionals that can help us. We only made it through four of the 12 points. As I said, this is going to be an ongoing thing. I hope this will be helpful to you. I hope that you all will um, be energized. I will say this as we close, and I need this as much as you do. Strike while the iron's hot. Strike while the iron's hot. You get up in the morning, you're like, I know I should really read the Word. Read the Word. If you have a period where you're like, oh, I, I'm just feeling, uh, I need to go pray and read the Word, you should go do that. Because when we don't, when we just brush that off, we usually end up having very bad days. At least I do. Um, so strike while the iron's hot. And, and do it do it joyfully. You know, enjoy. It's good for us. It's not, it's not a bad thing to have this... It's not, a, it's not a burdensome duty. It should be a delight. So let me pray for us, and then next week, Lord willing, we'll come back and pick up on the fifth of these principles. Father in heaven, we all need to be revived by the scriptures. We thank you that you send your word out and you heal us. We thank you that you reveal more of the length and breadth and width and height of the love of Christ for us as we study your word we pray that you would do that for us this morning as we worship we pray that you would bless the preaching of the word this morning we pray that our public worship would motivate us to be worshiping in private we pray that our private worship would be making us long to worship you together with your saints father be pleased to be present with us this morning for we pray these things in jesus name amen